Welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. In today's episode, we begin the series, Jesus at the Center of Prayer, with a discourse titled, Proximity. Over the approaching six weeks, our focus will be centered on studying the Lord's Prayer following the paradigm set by Jesus on how to pray. This week, our concentration will be addressing our prayers to God, our Father. The textual reference for today has been derived from the book of Matthew, chapter six, verses nine through 13. Here's Senior Pastor Brian Jones with today's message. Well, good morning, Brookwood. How are you? Good, good, good. Wasn't it an amazing weekend uh, last weekend getting to celebrate 30 years of what God has done in this church and uh, just his goodness. And uh, fun to celebrate our founding pastor, Perry, and uh, his wife, Leanne. Aren't they just amazing? Would you join me in thanking them one more time for just who they are and their faithfulness? They might be hiding in here somewhere this morning. And also, wasn't the weather great? We got to eat some barbecue, which I'm convinced God loves more than Mexican food, even though uh, many of you don't agree with that. But uh, the thing that I loved, uh, probably my favorite moment, wasn't it amazing seeing 70 people say yes to Jesus uh, at baptism? Yes, indeed. And I was just thinking there were two moments that I just wanted to encourage you, that as I walked away from Sunday, God was sort of stirring in my heart this last week. But there was someone who got baptized who just a few weeks ago said yes to Jesus. And uh, I got to see, yes, we can clap for that. Come on. Yes, indeed. You remember I preach quicker if you clap, so it's just get out of here on time. But, you know, I was thinking about the fact this person didn't know Jesus a few weeks ago. And I just, you ever get around someone who encounters the love of God and there's just like this whole new thing inside of them. The Bible talks about a new creation. And uh, I don't know about you, but I never tire of seeing people transformed by the goodness of Jesus. Amen. I just never tire of that and believe God's doing even more of that. The second thing that was just an incredible encouragement. found someone who hadn't been in our church for a while and uh, they were here to celebrate for the 30th. And they almost couldn't speak because they said, you know, I, I've come to this church, but there's just something I felt in this room. The spirit of God was working in a way that uh, I just was almost emotional during the service. And I, I, in my head, I, I thought, I know exactly what that is. That's the people of Brookwood. Because I want to make this real clear. God does not anoint brands or logos or, or buildings. He anoints people. And so there is something about the presence of God that is falling as the church and as you keep Jesus at the center. So I just couldn't be more proud and expectant of what God's doing, um, again, because of your faithfulness to keep Jesus at the center, which is honestly what we've been talking about uh, for the last few months and what we're going to continue to talk about because one of the things that I mentioned over the summer as I was meeting people, people asked the question, so what's the new vision going to be? And what's the strategy going to be? And what is the, the plans that you have for the future? What's the new exciting thing? And my answer disappointed some people, but I just said, it's Jesus at the center. That's simple. Because what's been true of Brookwood is what I want to continue to be true of Brookwood, that at the center of this church is not a vision, it is not a strategy, it is not a person, it is not a staff, it is not a plan, it is not something new and exciting. It is the name above every name, the name of Jesus Christ, amen? And so, uh, yeah, yes, indeed. And so I, I do want to encourage you this morning, though, uh, one of the things that I just, I, I was thinking about this is, you know, you have seen entire generations, entire empires, buildings, brands that, that we thought would never go away, that have just disappeared. And, and one of the things that I, I sense in Christians as I talk to, maybe you're in this room, is people are afraid of the future. 
And I know so many people probably even in this room that are afraid the church is just going to decline and shrink away. Many of you know people who have been in the church. I've known people who once sat in a room and declared the loyalty and the love for God and now they're, they're not in church, much less they don't really even call themselves Christians. So what gives us confidence that if things that we thought were going to be around forever, if empires that claimed they were going to be around forever and brands that you thought were going to be around forever have disappeared, what gives you confidence that the church will not disappear? You know, I was thinking about this, but if you cut back a plant and you just get the top of that plant, what happens is if you don't get the roots, you know what's going to happen. It's going to break forth. It's going to move forward. It's going to experience new growth. And the reason I tell you this is I want you to know when the church is rooted in Jesus Christ, when the church is rooted in Jesus Christ, you and I might experience setbacks and problems, but the church will move forward. It will break forth in the culture. It will continue to grow because Jesus himself says he's going to build the church and the gates of hell won't stand. Amen. And so I just want to encourage you this morning that wherever you are on this Jesus journey, you follow a God that when you put him in the center, not only brings new life, but he does an incredible work. And I want that for your life. Now, one of the things we're doing this series is we're talking about Jesus at the center of our prayer life. So we talked about Jesus at the center of the church, but now we're talking about this idea of Jesus at the center of prayer. Now, why spend two months on Jesus at the center of prayer? Here's one of the things that I find interesting as I was studying and preparing for this. Do you know that Jesus' disciples never asked him to put on a master class on how to preach? And I'd contend that Jesus was the greatest preacher on planet earth. You will not find a better sermon, I think, than the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and 6. It's interesting that Jesus' disciples saw him do some incredible miracles. But they never stopped and said, hey, will you teach us how to do miracles like you, Master? They saw arguably the greatest person on planet earth disciple with wisdom, but somewhere they never stopped that we know about and said, hey, would you teach a master class on discipleship? But yet there was something when they watched Jesus' prayer life, there was some gap in their prayer life. There was some correlation in the way that Jesus prayed and the peace and power that he had that in essence, when they saw him pray, they went up to him and they said, master, Lord, will you teach us to pray like that? And so in essence, what Jesus does is he teaches them some principles and some ingredients on how to pray. And that's what we're going to walk through over the course of this series. Now, I would say that probably everyone in this room, whether you're comfortable with prayer and you'd say, yeah, I prayed this week or I prayed this morning or whether you'd say you're uncomfortable in prayer. You've never really prayed or you don't know how to pray. I would contend that almost every one of us in this room has probably had some exposure to prayer. Think about it. You're probably at the end of this sermon, you're going to go to lunch and many of you will bless the food or you've been in a place where someone has blessed the food. And do you ever slow down and think about the fact that many of you at the end of this service, you're going to eat food filled with lard and fat and butter and sugar. And then you're going to go, Lord, would you take this food and bless it and nourish it into my body? Somebody's going to have a Big Mac in their hands going, God, would you take this food and would you bless it and nourish it? The blessing will be that you don't get diabetes, amen? <laughs> but you ever, you ever wonder if people just bless the food all the time? Sometimes you go through rhythms. You don't even know why you're praying. In fact, sometimes in church services, we don't like saying this, but when we need a transition, we just say, let's pray. We don't even think about what it is we're praying. 
Or how many of you have done this? How many of you have grown up in a family or you have done the bedtime prayers? Anybody do bedtime prayers or grown up with bedtime prayers? How many of you have ever done that prayer, now I lay me down to sleep? <laughs> few of you. How many of you still do that? Can I just confess that that is arguably the most terrifying prayer you can pray with a four-year-old? I mean, think about what you're praying with your kids. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. I mean, you just cue scary music. You know, it's like, now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, pray the Lord my soul to take. <laughs> it's like, you're basically saying to your kid, good night, sweet dreams, don't die, right? If you do, you'll see Jesus. You want a nightlight, huh? It's terrifying stuff. But all of us in this room would say we have some exposure to prayer, even if we just do it sort of rhythmic, even if we just bless the food out of habit, or even if we do bedtime prayers out of habit, even if we transition certain moments in a service out of habit, we don't always think about what it is we're praying. But I would contend that many of you in this room would say, hey, I believe in the power of prayer. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I know many people who'd say, I still believe in the power of prayer. People that I know that aren't religious will still say, will you pray for me? Because we believe there's something about the power of prayer. But most of us in this room would say, yeah, we believe in the power of prayer, but there's a disconnect between the way we pray, what our heart aches for, and the results we see. Because sometimes if we're honest, when we pray, it just feels like we're going through certain rhythms. It doesn't feel like we're always experiencing what it is we long for. And sometimes we don't even know if we're praying right. You ever get in that place where you're like, I'm just going to pray great thoughts today. Ten minutes later, you're on a shopping list on Home Depot. It's like your mind, whenever you begin to pray, and you go, how do people pray? I mean, how, how do you engage with God in that way? And honestly, whether you're uncomfortable with prayer, whether you're comfortable with prayer, this is an invitation at the beginning of this series that I think will be transformative for you because Jesus is going to give us some tools on how to pray and how to have a prayer life like Jesus. In fact, what I want to say is that the, the number one goal I have in this series is that you will increase your batting average when it comes to prayer. That, that when you step up to the plate to pray, if you will, you won't feel like you're constantly striking out or you're just going through the rhythms, that your confidence in prayer will increase. And so this is what this whole series, these next few months, is designed to do. I do want to say that one of these tools that we have for you, on the way out, uh, we have a Jesus at the center of prayer. So I mentioned this, one of the ways that we want to help you in your prayer journey and really spending time with God is we've created devotionals for you to, to help you spend daily time with God. Now, this one is a little different. Um, we still have a guided time, but what it is, as you'll see, is there is a thought in there and then there is a prayer practice that actually goes through this acronym PRAY. And so it helps you pause and be still and hear from God. It helps you uh, rejoice. It helps you ask God for certain things. In fact, um, we as a staff uh, spent a couple months before this prayer series just walking through. I led our staff through some of these prayer prompts. And I can tell you, multiple people have talked about just their capacity to hear from God has increased as they have just spent time each week listening to God. So this is a daily tool 
that I encourage you to grab on the way out. I've talked to so many of you. In fact, one of the things I hear, hear over and over again is that this tool has been helpful for you. And so you can download that. Again, we have a share button on there. If you want to forward that on to someone in your family, you ask for it. Um, but also just want to make sure that you get this tool. But this whole series is designed to increase your comfortability with prayer. Now, I, I want to read this quote that sort of gets to the heart of prayer. It's from a man named Jeremiah Lanford. Um, what's interesting about this man is he started a prayer meeting in New York from 12 to 1 years ago. And it was said that he started this prayer meeting and about five or six people showed up for the first few weeks. By the end of this sort of run they had, 10,000 people were meeting in this New York space for a prayer meeting. What's so moving about this is the New York Times got a hold of this and talked about the way in which God was moving in a prayer meeting. And I love what this man who had a vision for prayer said about prayer. This is what he says. Prayer has divided seas, rolled up flowing rivers, made flinty rocks gush into fountains, quenched flames of fire, muzzled lions, disarmed vipers and poison, marshaled the stars against the wicked, stopped the course of the moon, arrested the rapid sun in its great race, burst open iron gates, recalled souls from eternity, conquered the strongest devils, commanded legions of angels down from heaven. Prayer has bridled and changed the raging passions of man, routed and destroyed vast armies of proud, daring, bolstering atheists. Prayer has brought one man from the bottom of the sea and carried another in a chariot of fire to heaven. But I love this. What has prayer not done Brother, do you pray? See, this whole series is designed to increase your batting average and your comfortability with prayer. And the way that we're going to do that isn't talking about my principles of prayer. It's looking at the disciples, same question they asked Jesus. How do we pray? What's the ingredients to prayer? And this is what Jesus is going to walk through. And so we're going to spend close to two months walking through these ingredients in prayer. And the first one we're going to look at today is this idea of proximity. The starting point of prayer, of a prayer life like Jesus, is you understand this concept of proximity or the nearness of God. Notice what it says, starting in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. Our Father in heaven. The starting point to prayer is this idea of having God as a Father. And if God is a father, then that means a couple things that will help you as you're trying to get the prayer life of Jesus. The first thing you got to understand about God being a father is that uh, God as a father cares more than you know. God as a father cares more than you know. In fact, what's so interesting is you read this and you go, oh yeah, God's our father. If I could just get you back in, in this first century time, when Jesus made this statement... God as our father, this would have been one of the most shocking and sobering and revolutionary things anybody in that time would have heard of. In fact, the Pharisees, when Jesus spoke about God being a father, wanted to kill Jesus because it was blasphemous. They could not understand how God could be referred to as a father. Think about it like this. In that culture, they had a, they had a lot of different gods they worshipped, Greek and Roman gods when you studied. But no one believed that gods of that day were personal. They all believed they were powerful, but they were distant gods. In fact, what you find is when you study Roman and Greek culture, people believed that those gods were petty and they were feeble. 
And you had to appease those gods. If you didn't pray the right way, offer sacrifices, do certain things, those gods would get angry and then you'd have devastation or famine or war. And so all of a sudden Jesus comes in and he says something that is so countercultural. In fact, even to the Hebrew people of that day, do you know in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament there is only 15 references to God being referred to as a father. Not one of those is a personal reference. It's always things like God, the father of Israel. So it's, it's almost like a generic thing. And yet when Jesus enters the scene, the first thing he says is he says, pray like this, our father in heaven. Interesting enough, there was a uh, German theologian named Joachim Jeremias. And he wanted to study this term father that we just read about in verse 9. And so what he did was he studied the Old Testament and then he studied any ancient rabbinic writing he could get his hands on. So the rabbis of that day, they would write letters and commentaries and notes. They would almost do their version of sermons on the Bible. And so he went through hundreds and thousands of resources and he was looking for one thing. Did anybody refer to God as a father? The first reference he found to God being referred to as a father was the 10th century AD. Which, think about this, means the first rabbi to ever introduce the concept of God as a father was Jesus of Nazareth. This was revolutionary. In fact, it was so revolutionary that when you take the first four books of the Bible, which is really the account of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is a 165 references to God being a personal father. Compare that with 15 times in the Old Testament. So this is the starting point that you have to understand of prayer. In fact, I heard this story, I found it interesting. If you study Roman culture, you know that whenever a emperor had a great military victory, they would do something called a triumphal entry, which is really quite rich when you think about Jesus in the Bible, you'll read about his triumphal entry where he comes in on a donkey humble. That is playing off the antithesis of what they did in Roman culture, where whenever an emperor would win a great battle, they would bring the spoils of war, they would bring prisoners, and they would do like almost like a Super Bowl type parade. Everyone would line the streets and they would chant the emperor's name. And it was said that there was this emperor who had had this great military conquest. People were cheering and chanting. He was going down the road as he turned the corner his wife and his little boy saw him and this little boy ran towards his father. And as he got towards his father, one of the guards stopped him and said, son, you can't move past here. Do you know who's out there? That's the emperor. And it's said that this little boy just laughed and looked at him and said, he might be your emperor, but that's my dad. And you think about this. Most of us don't struggle with the idea of God as a father, but I ask this humbly, do you really believe God is your personal father? Do, do you believe that he is interested in you? Because the gospel doesn't just say you're loved. The gospel says you're liked. That God wants to spend time with you. That he's not just the God of Brookwood or the God of the universe, but he's the God who's in your very living room. He's the God who's in your very car. He's the God who's in your bedroom. And he's interested in you. Because most people have what I refer to, and I've said this before, is almost this idea of being a situational atheist. Yes, God, I believe you hold the whole world in your hands, but I don't know if I can trust you with this circumstance. Yes, God, I believe you're a father, but I don't know if you're really that interested in me. God, I know that you say this is the starting point of prayer, but I'm not even that religious right now. 
God, I'm not the person that you tend to meet with. That's for those elite people, those super spiritual people. And so in essence, Jesus wants you to know, not for the masses, but for you as the individual, the starting point is he is the God of Sarah. He is the God of James. He is the God of Brian. He is the God of Michael. He is the God of Samantha. He is the God of Alex. He is the God of Rob. And when you start to see this, suddenly you start to go, you know what? If I really believed this, if I believed the God who hung the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxy was actually interested in me, suddenly the things of this world would grow dim to me. Because I'd go, if this God, remember what David says in the Psalms? He goes, what is man that you're mindful of him? Your picture of God will determine your future. Because if you have a weak, feeble view of God, all of a sudden a God who wants to spend time with you, isn't that exciting? But if he is the king of kings, lord of lords, and he's a father, that transforms everything. And so Jesus goes, here's the starting point, our father in heaven. Interesting enough, there's only one time in the entire Bible. Every time Jesus speaks about God, he refers to him as a father. Every time Jesus prays, he refers to him as a father. One time he doesn't. I didn't know this one. Anybody know the one time he doesn't? You got it. Come on. Bring you everywhere. Come on. On the cross. Remember what he says on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time Jesus never refers to God as his father. And part of that is a fulfillment of Psalms 22. But also it's this. This is the first time when he's on the cross. Think about this. This is the first time when he's on the cross that he loses this relationship with his heavenly father. The Bible says he who knew no sin became sin. So what gives you and I confidence that you can come this morning and experience the grace of God? Because here's the goodness. Jesus has paid for your sin once and for all. And listen, I know some of you, you're amazing at sinning. I'm amazing at sinning. But I tell you what, he's a better savior. He's a better savior. And so you can boldly approach God as your father. Remember what Hebrews talks about? You approach the throne with confidence, not timidity, not on your past performance, but because Jesus was crushed and cut off so that you could be a son or daughter of God. To the degree that you get this will transform your prayer life. Because if every day it feels like you're going to give your report card to Jesus in prayer, you won't approach him very much. But if you understand he's your father, if you understand that Jesus paid for your sin once and for all and gives you access, suddenly there is no greater place you can be in the presence of God. And Jesus knows we're prone to miss this. That's why he starts off going, if you want a prayer life like mine, you got to understand. Starts with this, our father in heaven. This frees you from performance or striving. And listen, I don't have time to fully unpack this, but I just think it's important to note, every one of you in this room will project your earthly father onto your heavenly father. So if you had a father that was constantly pressing or striving or wanting you to perform, you're going to struggle with this. But I just want you to know, no matter what your earthly father was or is, you have a perfect heavenly father. And that's the starting point. You start to see it this way. I love what uh, a man named Richard Foster says about prayer. He says, in the same way that a child cannot draw a bad picture so a child cannot offer a bad prayer. In the same way a child cannot offer a bad picture. If you have kids, you know what this is like. I mean, I used to have, you know, my, my uh, friends, their kids would draw pictures and everyone would be like, that's a beautiful picture. I'm like, that's terrible. That's three lines on a paper. 
But all of a sudden, it's like my kids do these things, and I'm like, that's a little Leonardo. Look at that. <laughs> little Da Vinci down here. He's got these lines and these things going. Because when it's your kid, you're not interested in their performance. If they make something for you, it's about their heart. In fact, I love every picture my daughter has drawn except for, there's only one picture. I came across this one picture. We gave her a marker. She snuck away. And then she wrote on the wall. And then we asked her, what did you write? And uh, she said, you can kind of see it there. She wrote the word toot. <laughs> so that's the only picture I have never enjoyed that my daughter has drawn. But if she drew that on paper, I'd probably like it. And so I want you to see the starting point of understanding prayer is knowing that you don't perform for God. You're not trying to strive or say the right prayers or do the right things. In the same way a little kid just shows up in the presence of their father, that's the invitation. Jesus wants you to know it's not about performance. It's not about a striving. It's the fact that God cares more than you know, but it's also this fact. When you understand God as a father, here's another important ingredient in your prayer life is that he's closer than you think. He's closer than you think. This really just blew my mind a couple years ago when I stumbled across this. But in Hebrew culture, I want to show you something. In Hebrew culture, they believed in three different realms of heaven. They believed that there was almost three different spots or parts of heaven. And so the first place they, they referred to as heaven was the air. And so let me just show you this first, Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Interesting enough, that word for air is the same Greek word, the base Greek word for Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, where it says heaven. Our Father in heaven. It's the same base word because, again, in Hebrew culture, they had this idea that there were three almost places or parts of heaven. And the first was that of the air. The next is they believe that the next heaven was the universe. Think of the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, the solar systems. And oftentimes people will get out in almost like a dark field and they'll see the moon or the stars and they have this sense of the awareness of God. And this is what it says in Psalms 8.3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place. Again, notice heavens here in Psalms 8 is referring to the universe, the stars, and the galaxies. But then they also had this belief in heaven as the highest of heavens, the place where God dwells. So this is the place where God is because God is omnipresent. He's not just in the air. He's not just, you know, in the universe or the sky, he's everywhere. And so they had this belief that he was in the highest of heavens. And if you don't have this understanding, you struggle to interpret verses like 2 Corinthians 12 2, where Paul says something about a third heaven. In fact, listen to what he says. I was caught up to the third heaven for uh, 14 years ago where I was in my body or out of my body. I don't know, only God knows. But what is he saying? I was in the place where God dwells. I was with God. And so in essence, this is incredibly profound because when Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, the word for heaven is the plural word here. So in essence, it's referring to all these heavens. So, so God is the God who is in the highest of heavens. He is the God who is in the moon, the stars, the galaxies. But think about this. He is also in the very air you breathe. Most of the time when you think of God, at least when I read this prayer, I thought of God as distant and far off. 
He's a father who's just sort of watching, checking on me every once in a while. But think about this. I want you to do something real quick. Just this morning, breathe in like, just take a deep breath this morning. Think about this. What Jesus is saying is, the God who's so close, he's in your very breath. The God who's so close, he's in your very lungs. He's not some distant, far off God. He is a father who cares more than you know, and he's closer than you think. He is in your living room. He is in your office. He is in your car. He is everywhere you go. He is in your very lungs. When you start to see this, he's not some distant, far off God that you meet with on Sundays every once in a while. This is the transformative part of Jesus teaching us to pray. He is closer, closer than you think. Jesus is speaking to people who had this view of gods who are distant and not personal, and he is changing the game. He's changing the game when you start to go, now there is a God who walks everywhere with me. He is my father in the midst of this. Listen to what Psalms 139 verse 7 says. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. You ever notice that no matter how far you run from God, you can't get away from him? I love this. God is really bad at hide and seek. You think about this, there, there are some people in this room and you think you're running from God. The problem is when you slow down for a moment, and you just look, you realize you could never escape God. He is the God that is right there. He is personal. And then when you wake up to the idea, he's not there going, hey, what'd you do last Saturday? Hey, why didn't you come to church? He's not there to beat you down. He's a father that cares more than you know, and he's closer than you think. When you wake up to this idea and you realize you can't flee from God's presence, it transforms everything. Because the problem is, and I said this before, is we trust our feelings way too much, way too much. And I will say this every single chance I get, you cannot trust your feelings this morning. It doesn't matter what you feel. The enemy wants you to think that, that whatever you feel is true. The problem with that is, do you just notice feelings? One morning you wake up and you're like, bless the Lord, all my soul. The very next morning you're like, I'm gonna burn it all down. <laughs> what changed? Nothing, your feelings. And so can I just encourage you, no matter what you feel, this morning, you have a God that when you awaken and you pause for a sec, if you've been running for God for your whole life, if you've been running for weeks or months, I just want to remind you, you cannot flee from him. He is a father that's closer than you think, but he's a good father. Amen. He's a good father. And no matter what you had in your earthly father, there's a God who loves you and he's crazy about you. But here's the other part I want you to see about the ingredients of God being a father. Now, this one we don't always like as much. It's he corrects those he loves. He corrects those he loves. No one ever gets excited about the discipline part, do they? <laughs> but you think about this. Any good parent, when their kids get off course, what will they do? They'll discipline them. They'll redirect them. I came across this quote. I love this quote. It's from Mark Twain. He says this, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he had learned in his seven years. Isn't that awesome? When I was 14, I couldn't stand the old man. But in seven years, I was astonished at what he learned. Isn't it true that sometimes, not just kids think they know best, that sometimes as children of God, we think we know best. 
There are times where I'm just amazed that I could preach a sermon the next second I'm advising God on how I think he should run my life or the future. Hey God, I know what you were doing there, but I think you would have been better to do this. And ultimately what happens is, is that there are times where God will correct or he will redirect his children. Now let me say this because words create worlds and if you don't have a healthy theology, this will damage your understanding of God being a father. In fact, I would contend that what I'm about to show you, some of you, when I show you this, you have to unlearn some of this because the way that you're projecting onto God is because you have a misunderstanding of discipline. In fact, let me just show you these three words right here. There are three words that people sort of use interchangeably, the punishment, discipline, and consequences. These are fundamentally and radically different and they create whole different outcomes. Let me just say this, if you are a child of God, if you are a son or daughter of God, there is no such thing as punishment. And you have to be very careful when you start talking about this. Because what the Bible says in Isaiah 53 verse five, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. Jesus took all of the punishment on the cross. So it's not biblical to say God is punishing you. In fact, the problem with punishment is if you really start to break down what punishment is, it's getting revenge or making people pay for their mistakes. I've seen people under the guise of conflict and they say, oh yeah, we just want conflict resolution. But really what they want to do is just punish you and make you feel the weight of what you've done. So oftentimes when we speak about God, people will say things like, well, God's just punishing you for doing this. That is not biblical. It's not true. And if you have that view, it will distort your understanding of God being a father. Because he paid for your sins once and for all. It is finished. In fact, the best know in the Bible, the best know in the Bible, write it down, Romans 8, chapter 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Best know in the Bible. So God is not punishing you. He's not condemning you. In fact, let me just encourage you with this. Anything that creates fear or paralysis in your life is not from God. That's from the enemy. The enemy wants you to think God wants to punish you. But anything that creates paralysis or fear, God will discipline you because discipline says, I made a mistake. Punishment says you are a mistake. Those are fundamentally different things. You are not a mistake. Jesus Christ has paid for it. You're a son or daughter of God. He is not punishing you. And so you have to understand that that is the starting point of understanding God as a father. Now, what he will do is he will discipline you. He will discipline you. But it's a future-oriented kind of love. It's a redirection. And I said this before, but it's like the knife of a surgeon versus the knife of a thief. Both hurt, but one heals. And so do you ever think about this phrase? It's the what of God that leads us to repentance. You know what it is? The kindness. It is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It is not punishment. It is God going, hey, you know what? You're my son or daughter and you think this thing is best, but you're a few degrees off. And I love you enough to take this thing away from you, call you out on this, let you experience a little bit of pain so that you will understand that thing isn't worth it. He's not some cosmic cop or angry God. And if you don't start with understanding the difference between punishment and discipline, you will always think God's punished me and he's not doing that. You know, years ago, I I actually lost a job. And I'm telling you, the, the person who I ended up working with was awful. And I kind of thought she was the reason that I had lost this job. And then one day I'm praying and God gives me this verse. And I knew it was from God because it was disorienting to me. Sometimes you can know it's from God because it's just not something you would expect. Kind of shocks you. 
And so I expected God to give me some like Romans 8.28 verse, like everything that happens, happens for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what he gave me? He gave me a verse in Job. No one wants God to quote a verse from Job. It's not good stuff, all right? (laughs) So he says this, though you slay me, I will trust in you. And he just whispered to me, you think everyone else is doing this, I'm doing this. And what I realized in that moment, my heart in the middle of busyness and pace had become more distant from God than maybe arguably any season in my life. My wife will tell you that season is where a life of prayer began to birth up. As I lost this thing in my life and it was God almost disciplining me and redirecting me and taking me to this deeper place. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 12, 11. No discipline seems present or pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Now, let me give one disclaimer here. If you're experiencing abuse or someone is manipulating something, that's not discipline. That's the effects of a fallen, broken world. So if you're experiencing someone else's sin, that's not what God intends to use as discipline. That's just the effects of a fallen world. What I'm talking about is as your heart has gotten a few degrees off and some things are happening in your life and you know God's trying to get your attention, what he's doing is he's redirecting. It's the kindness of God. But also there are some things that you've got to understand that if you get off a few degrees, there are consequences. And again, we don't like this because we like grace, but the truth is this has nothing to do with punishment, but there are natural results for bad decisions. If you do sloppy work in your job, God is not punishing you if you get fired. Or if you had an affair, God will forgive that. But oftentimes as I speak with people who have made mistakes, their spouses struggle to trust them. And that's a natural consequence of an action. If I tell my wife, hey, why don't you change? That dress doesn't look good. There are some consequences for that. (laughs) Doesn't matter how much God loves me. But I want you to see that there are consequences that some people in this room might be facing, but it's not punishment. It's just the reality that you walk through. And so can I just encourage you, wherever you are, here is the one point I want you to get. You have a father who's good. He's a good father who cares more than you know, not just for the macro, but for you, the individual. He's a God who's closer than you think. When you leave this service, God is not in this building. He is with you everywhere you go. And he is also a God who corrects those he loves. And maybe you're walking through something because it's the kindness of God that he's going, I know it feels painful right now, but if you trust me and if you submit to me, I'm going to grow up a righteousness and a peace that you can never have outside of this circumstance. So can I just encourage you as we become people of prayer, the starting point, the first ingredient that Jesus wants us to get is to understand that you have a heavenly father who loves you. I love what Ian Bounds says. He says, this is not a praying age. It is an age of great activity, of great movements, but one in which the tendency is very strong to stress the seen and the material and neglect and discount the unseen and the spiritual. I really believe what I'm about to say. No church is greater than its prayer life. No individual is greater than their prayer life. I would contend Jesus had the greatest prayer life of anybody on planet earth. And if you and I want to be like Jesus, he's giving us an invitation to pray like him. And so no matter how confident, no matter how uncomfortable you are, we have some tools that are going to help you on this prayer journey. I promise you this, if you just stay faithful for these next seven or eight weeks, you will start to hear God in new and fresh ways. It will take a journey But let me just say this before I close. One thing I will challenge you is this. I will challenge you every chance I get. Consistency over intensity. Consistency over intensity. I shared this, but a lot of times I'd get fired up on some talk, some sermon, 
I'd realize that I was eating too much carbs or something like that. I'd go to the gym, work out every part of my body for four hours, and then not show up till the next year. <laughs> and some of you will go, oh, yeah, prayer, let's go do it. And then you'll, I'm going to pray all night. Don't do that. Unless the Holy Spirit tells you to pray all night. Consistently spend time with God. Strengthen your heart and your passion. Taste and see God is good. The more you just carve out margin, because some of you, you're going to spend time. I said this before. You're going to spend time. Isn't it interesting? You can watch a movie. You're wide awake. You wonder what happens. You pray, and in 10 minutes, you're fast asleep. I believe part of that is demonic. The enemy opposes you praying. I think he wants you busy with activities and good things and even church work, but he opposes you understanding this principle that you have a God who's a father, who's with you. So this is the starting point of prayer. I want you to take this devotional as a resource, pray that. The other thing I want to say, and then we'll be done, is if you're not connected to a small group, if you really want to experience prayer and really God is a father, you really, really need to surround yourself with like-minded people. I remember a pastor said to me one time, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Because the people that you surround yourself, the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, man sharpens another. And there's something about when we are all in weak spots because we have seasons where we're just exhausted or sort of defeated. And there's other seasons where we're in great spots. But what a gift when you have a community of people in those low seasons that come around and strengthen you and breathe life into you. So if you don't have a group, here's the good news. There are two simple ways you can find a group. We're starting off, so there's going to be a whole lot of new people in groups. So you won't be the only new person. The first is you can go online. You can go on this group locator. You can find a group. The other way, because some of you won't do that. The other way you can do that is just show up on Wednesday night. We're going to have a large group of small groups. So everyone's going to be new. So you can show up in pod C, and there's going to be people that are going to gather. And try that for a season and see if God does something in the midst of that. The second thing I want to say is those of you who have small groups, there's some of you that are on a roster or you, you sort of do an informal group with some coworkers or some neighbors. Um, I want to encourage you on the app, you can actually get this content for the next six weeks. In fact, you'll see behind me on the app, there's community group resources. So some people have been going, I want to start a group in my neighborhood or I want to start a group in my you know, work. But the problem is I don't have the resources or the ability to lead this. We have created resources that all you have to do is gather people. So for the next six weeks, every small group, and if you want to start a small group, again, someone in your work, someone in your home. I know some couples who've just said, we're really busy, we're traveling, but we're going to do this as a couple together. Do that. Because what we're doing is what we're speaking about on Sunday, we're actually giving another midweek look. So I've given a 12-minute talk on this very subject. We're talking about God is our Father. And you just go to that community group resources and you can see that talk. And then there are questions that go along with that talk that you can talk about in your small group, with your spouse, even with your family. But I'm just encouraging you to do whatever you can to dive deeper because I just believe God's up to something and he's pouring out his spirit in a new and fresh way. And I don't want you to miss hearing from God. Amen? Well, let me pray for you uh, as we close and dismiss. But I want to say this as always. I'm aware that in a room of this size, some of you come with some really heavy needs. Uh, some of you just want prayer. And we have a group of people that uh, come every single week, prayed up to meet your, your needs, pray for you. So if there's anything we can pray for you, your family, even one of these small groups that you might be starting. We want to invite you. We have our, our prayer counselors down front. Also, if you have any questions that you want on groups or, or info, you can go to the info desk as well. But let me just pray and we'll close out our time. Heavenly Father, we thank you. 
We thank you that we can call you Father. I pray that that would take on new meaning for us. Even as we just sort of go through the motions this week and as we pray, that, that you would remind us what it means and how revolutionary it is to have the God of the universe as a personal father. God, I just thank you what David said, what is man that you are mindful of him? God, I pray that you would awaken us with a new passion and a, and a new understanding of your love for us. That somehow you run galaxies and solar systems, but yet you're interested in every detail of our life. What a humbling thought. I pray for people in this room that that thought of you being a father wouldn't just enter their minds, but it would penetrate their hearts. That it would awaken us this morning that if we really do have a father who loves us and is closer and is guiding our life, then we really are rich in you no matter what circumstances we face this morning. So I pray blessings over small groups as they gather. I pray blessings over this series and I pray that your voice would become louder. So God, we love you. We thank you. It is in your mighty, amazing, wonderful name we pray. Everyone agreed and said, amen. amen. Blessings, friends. The scriptures assure us that God will never leave us and will never forsake us. As you focus on prayer this week, concentrate on the closeness of God. Make a request to God to assist you in sensing His presence and maintaining your focus on Him throughout the week. A daily devotional is accessible to follow throughout the series. We encourage you to dedicate time on a daily basis for scriptural engagement with God in which this daily devotional can help. It is conveniently accessible through the new Brookwood Church app. Physical copies of the devotional booklet are also available from either the office at the reception desk or the informational desk on Sunday mornings. Here's the memory verse for this week, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray like this, Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. We appreciate you listening to the Brickwood Church Sunday Message Podcast today. Please leave a review so that others can unearth the possibilities of a transformed life in Christ. Thank you for being with us today, and we eagerly look forward to your presence on our forthcoming episode.